0: This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 25 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. With me today is Blaine Hardin, a former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and the New York Times, who has reported on stories from Africa, Eastern Europe, and Asia. Blaine has also written three books about North Korea. I invited Blaine on the podcast after I read one of those three books called King of Spies, It's the true story of an incredibly complex man, an Air Force intelligence officer named Donald Nichols. Nichols was in the right place at the right time before and during the Korean War to become one of the most valuable American intelligence operatives in history. But he also witnessed and participated in brutal war crimes and carried his own personal demons along the way, which eventually destroyed him. I've read a lot of books on the history of espionage over the past few years, but King of Spies is easily one of the most readable and least known stories I've ever come across. I love this book, and I know that you all are going to find this story as fascinating as I did. So, Blaine, thank you so much for taking the time to share this story with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. It seems like very little was known about Nichols' story until you published this book in 2017. How did you first learn about him, and how did you go about uncovering so much of his story?
1: I learned about him from a North Korean fighter pilot Hmm. who defected from North Korea in 1953 in a Soviet-made MiG and landed at a U.S. Air Force base near Seoul, jumped out of his MiG and said, take me to your leader. And the leader that this fighter pilot, whose name was no suk who now lives in South Florida under the name Kenneth Rowe, they took him to Donald Nichols. And I was writing a book about this fighter pilot, one of my three books about North Korea, and I had never heard of Donald Nichols. uh, But the fighter pilot was very impressed by this guy. He spoke pretty good Korean, which was very unusual for an American. And he was an expert on the hierarchy of the North Korean Air Force. In fact, he seemed to know personally, this fighter pilot's bosses, which was astounding to the fighter pilot and to me when I heard the story. So Mm. I finished that book in 2015. And then I said, well, who is Donald Nichols? And then I went sniffing after him. And he had more or less escaped History. There were a few monographs in military specialty books about him. His name was never mentioned in the New York Times or the Washington Post. He had been an, an essential intelligence operative in during before and after the Korean War, but he was invisible to the American public and the American press.
0: That's that's incredible. Yeah, I, I love diving into stuff like this for sure. And I want to start. At the beginning, of course, the beginning of Donald's life and at the beginning of your book, because it seems so much of his life was shaped by his childhood and his early years growing up. So can you kind of go into that, what it was like for Donald growing up?
1: Well, in the CIA, many of the uh, famous spies and certainly the leaders of the CIA were bluebloods who went to fancy colleges like Yale and Harvard summered in uh, Long Island and uh, were part of the ruling class of America. Donald Nichols wasn't. He grew up in a quite poor, almost destitute family, first in Hackensack, New Jersey, and later in South Florida. In New Jersey, he was the youngest of four brothers. His father was a postman, and his mother was a very unhappy housewife who often bathed naked in the kitchen sink in front of her sons Mm. and often entertained sexually suitors other than her husband while her husband was out delivering the mail. So all the boys grew up with a somewhat troubled mother who, who, and Donald was the most troubled by this. He was the youngest and he hated and loved his mother in a very complicated way all of his life.
0: Mm. Yeah, I know that, that definitely plays into later things. And I know he had a lot, from reading your book anyway, I know that he had a lot of difficulties with his father as well. The father kind of suffered from this relationship with the mother. And in some ways, it seems like he took it out on the boys, didn't he?
1: He did. And he he threatened to kill himself quite often, but only after he would publicly uh, threatened to kill all of his sons by cutting their throats. They grew up very poor oh, in Hollywood, Florida. Donald basically came of age stealing vegetables from his neighbors, along with tractor parts, which he tried to hawk. He was hungry, chronically hungry. He uh, went to school with hand-me-down jeans and old ratty shirts. He rarely wore socks or underwear. He had a real chip on his shoulder about his poverty. And he joined the military mostly so he could eat.
0: Hmm. Man, that's a shame. So he obviously... He becomes this legendary intelligence officer later on, but do you think that there was any indication or anything from this this very difficult background of his that gave him the skills he would need later on? Or was this kind of what led to his downfall and these burdens that he carried throughout his life?
1: Well, I think what he gained from his childhood was a, a skill in larceny of all kinds, sort of an amoral survival instinct, and a sense that he was an underdog, and that he had to outwork, out hustle, out cheat everybody to get ahead. Hmm. And that's that's what he did in the military.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I can I can see how that would be very helpful in certain circumstances, for sure. So you said he joined basically just to eat, so he didn't go into intelligence right off the bat, is that correct?
1: Right. He, he joined the army when he was just old enough to do. I think he was 17 when he joined, joined the army. And he was sent to Karachi in, in India, which now is in Pakistan. He, and he was trained as a carburetor repairman and worked in the army motor pool in Karachi. And he also did a sideline of embalming his friends who died of tropical diseases in Karachi. But his big success in Karachi was as a kind of Radar O'Reilly figure who worked on the docks. He went down to the docks where stuff came in, and he stole food, supplies, equipment, whiskey, things that would make his bosses happy. And he learned an important lesson that if you please your bosses by getting them what they want. They never questioned your methods. He also became a master sergeant. So he was 19 years old when he became a master sergeant, which was one of the youngest master sergeants in the army at that time. Hmm. And it was a a testament to his ability to get things done and please his bosses.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So A carburetor mechanic and an embalmer, that's like the furthest thing I would imagine from an intelligence officer. So how was it that he wound up in this totally different career later on?
1: Well, he he came back from Karachi after the war. He was sick with several tropical diseases. He recovered and then he reenlisted again to the motor pool and he was sent to Guam. And this is at a time uh, post war when Harry Truman was taking the military apart, shrinking it from about six million men in arms, men and women in arms to about a half a million so there was a very, very narrow window for anyone who wanted a future in the, in the American military. While he was on, uh, on Guam, he saw an ad posted on a bulletin board saying that the army was looking for members, for people to join the, the CIC, the Counterintelligence Corps, uh, with training in Japan. So he volunteered, he was sent to Japan, and he had six weeks of training as an intelligence officer. Now, this is probably the most intense schooling he'd ever had in his life. He dropped out of school when he was in seventh grade. So with six weeks of training as a spy, he was then sent to Korea.
0: Hmm. Okay. And this is in, what, 1947 or so? Is that correct? 1946. Oh, 46. Okay. Okay. He was sent to Korea. One thing about Korea
1: at the time is that serving in Japan, post-war Japan, was a very cushy assignment for GIs. They were paid a lot of money relative to the cost of living. They had access to excellent food, excellent recreation, lots of available women. And one of the things that every GI feared while being in Japan was an assignment outside of Japan. It was said that the greatest fear was gonorrhea, diarrhea, and an assignment to Korea. <laughs> Donald yeah. Nichols d- did not feel that way. He, he was just happy to work for the military. And so he went to Korea with great enthusiasm. He arrived when he was just 21 with, with no experience as a spy, but incredible appetite for work and a facility for languages. He quickly learned decent Korean which separated him from all the uh, almost all the other American intelligence people there and there weren't very many and no one would work as hard as he did.
0: Hmm. Right, Korea was not a high priority for the, the US military at that time. It was not seen as a uh, you know an emerging battlefield or, or anything like that, was it? Although that was the case.
1: What happened in Korea was uh it was divided right at the end of World War II. A couple of uh, colonels in the White House uh, in the last months of uh, World War II drew a line across the the Korean Peninsula, an arbitrary line. And it it, it, it gave the North to Stalin (laughs) and it gave the South to the United States. And uh, in in the ensuing years, states that aligned with with the Soviet Union and a state that aligned with, with the United States were established above and below that line. And at the same time that that was going on, this artificial division roping the Korean Peninsula into what would become the Cold War, a civil war broke out across South Korea. And this is a very important thing to understand. Americans were completely ignorant of this civil war, but it was a very bloody business. What was going on is that a majority of the landless poor was searching for a government that would do land reform, get most of the land out of the hands of a few rich landholders, and also create a a democratic kind of socialism that, that was very popular. But what happened was when the Americans came in, as they often did during that era, they identified with and supported the aristocracy, the landholders. And so a really bloody war broke out between those who had land and who had the American's ear and those who wanted land and were uh, willing to fight for it. And this, this war cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. And when Donald Nichols wandered into uh, Korea in 1946, he wandered into the middle of this civil war. He quickly aligned himself, of course, with the American government because he worked for the American government. And he went to work establishing sources throughout North and South Korea that were aligned with the the old order. And that old order would soon include Sigmund Rhee. And Sigmund Rhee is very important to this story. Sigmund Rhee was a, a Korean who'd spent much of his life in the United States, He was probably the best educated Korean on earth when he returned at the age of 70 to become the president of the country. He was brought back by the Americans who thought that he would be a compliant leader. Anyhow, he had had a Ph.D. from Princeton. He had studied at Harvard. He He spoke superb English and he was really skilled in manipulating Americans into doing what he wanted them to do. And he certainly understood the American psyche and the American system and the American idiomatic language better than almost any Korean. And Sigmund Rhee and Donald Nichols became friends. Uh, Around 1946, shortly after Nichols arrived, he met Sigmund Rhee. I'm not exactly sure where they met, but soon they discovered in each other real, real value. Sigmund Ree could use Nichols to pass on information that he thought would support him, his rise to power, and his, his hatred of North Korea. And Nichols, of course, if he had the ear of the president of South Korea, had the best source available. And so they established a friendship, a very strange friendship, really. Nichols was, you know, in his early 20s with no education at all. And Sigmund Rhee was 70 and was supremely well-educated and sophisticated. But the the friendship endured for 11 years before, during, and after the Korean War.
0: That's incredible. I can't believe that nobody from the U.S. hierarchy you know, wanted to insert themselves in there that they wouldn't want a higher ranking person involved or somebody to say that, you know, this 21 year old on his first tour, fresh out of school should not be our primary point of contact with the, the Korean president. But uh, against the laws, that's what happened.
1: Well, what happened was that there was a vacuum of intelligence and of interest in the Korean peninsula up until 1950. The Grand Puba, the, the great American general General uh, Douglas MacArthur was working in Japan, rebuilding Japan and actually doing a terrific job of it. And Japan emerged as a pro-American democracy with a working economy much quicker than anyone could possibly have guessed. And Douglas MacArthur was helping to do that and taking all the credit for it and reveling in his success. Meanwhile, things were very messy. As I said, in, in, in nearby Korea, there was a, a really bloody civil war going on. And in, the, and in the north of Korea, the Soviets were supporting the, the North Korean leader in terms of a, a massive military buildup. But Douglas MacArthur wasn't interested in learning about that because he was running Japan. And so trouble started to brew in Korea as Douglas MacArthur ignored it.
0: Hmm. Okay, that's, yeah, that's usually how it starts for sure. So was Donald very valuable because of his access to the president, or did he have other things going on in country as well before the war began?
1: Well, he, he developed a network of contacts in the South Korean intelligence services and in the South Korean military. Working with Sigmund Rhee, Donald Nichols actually helped create he helped create the South Korean Air Force, even though he'd been told not to do so by his own commanders. Hmm. He, he, was, he, he was he was he inc- was remarkably autonomous, and because he was not a well-read, highly sophisticated intelligence officer. He sort of did what he wanted to do, whatever he felt would be helpful to ingratiate himself, to re and to increase his power and his access to intelligence that South Korea was generating. When you, when you live in a, in a, in a country like South Korea, the best sources of intelligence is going to be the network of, of Korean speakers that's all over the country and filtered all over the peninsula. And Nichols plugged into that in a uniquely efficient way in the years before the Korean War.
0: Hmm. That, that's amazing, You know, especially considering he just had six weeks of training, like you said, and I don't think he ever had a serious, what do I call it, like a near-peer mentor. I mean, he didn't have anybody guiding him on how to do all this stuff. He just figured it out on his own and succeeded spectacularly, it seems like.
1: Yeah, he, he had a gift for developing sources and for ruthlessly exploiting them the ruthlessness would grow as the war broke out. Now, what's important to understand is that the Korean War, which started in June of 1950, was, was, was a big surprise to the United States, the White House, Congress, and the American people. It was a shock, but it was not a shock at all to Donald Nichols, For more than two years, he had been reporting in hundreds of intelligence reports that the Soviets were bringing in tanks, aircraft, heavy artillery, and training supervisors from the Soviet Union, and that they they had evacuated people from the border. Since I wrote the book, I've got access to more documents that show that Nichols was giving almost daily reports about a Imminent military invasion, and he sent these reports on an almost daily basis to General MacArthur's chief of intelligence, a guy named Charles Willoughby. And a very important part of this story is MacArthur and Willoughby. MacArthur was a five-star general at that time. He was entering his eighth decade. He was more than seventy years old. of Of magnificence, he was what he suffered from from an ailment that one of his biographers called Peacockery, which, which was a combination of pride and arrogance. And he hated to be told what he did not know. His chief of intelligence, uh, Charles A. Willoughby, was an expert in giving MacArthur a bath in his own preconceptions. He never told MacArthur bad news. So all these reports were coming in from Nichols, mm. hundreds of them over two years that This Korean peninsula was on the brink of a major world war, and Willoughby didn't tell MacArthur or downplayed all of these reports. Wow. In fact, Willoughby was so upset by Nichols reporting that he tried to get Nichols fired and thrown off the Korean peninsula in the months before the war broke out.
0: My gosh, that is about as backwards as it can get. I mean, I guess it's easy for us to say that in hindsight, but it still seems like you can't just disregard, like you said, hundreds of written reports from a person on the ground just because you don't like the idea of it.
1: The CIA would later describe the failure uh, by Willoughby and MacArthur to prepare for this invasion as one of the most consequential and catastrophic intelligence failures in American history.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that, that certainly sounds right for sure. I know it was a total shock when everything went down. But before the war even began, I know a minute ago you mentioned the the very brutal civil war that was taking place there that was getting no international attention at all. So how was Donald involved or aware of everything that was going on with the uh, executions, torture, imprisonment, everything else that was happening at that time?
1: Because Nichols was very close to Sigmund Rhee, he had complete access to what Rhee's intelligence forces were doing to conduct this civil war against Rhee's political enemies. And with this access, he would sit in on torture sessions. He attended mass executions. There are photographs of him standing and watching and taking photographs as people are shot to death. I found a picture of him standing on the roof of the uh, of the South Korean Army headquarters in Seoul, standing next to a bucket containing a severed human head. Nichols wrote in his autobiography that very often he would have these heads preserved in gasoline in buckets in his office. My gosh! He lived in in a real netherworld of violence and and terror as as re fought against his political enemies. This was all in the war that predated what we call the Korean War.
0: Hmm. Was he participating or encouraging this kind of stuff in any way, or was he just observing and reporting? I he mean, was being a, a severed he head was, is incredible to me.
1: As far as I know, he was not chopping people's heads off. He was not torturing. He was not doing water torture himself. But he was in the room when it was going on, and he was gathering whatever intelligence this torture Produced, He would claim that torture was effective. Later, the United States now believes it's not based on evidence. But in any case, Nichols was there and he used it. And he actually lied about his presence at at, at mass killings that were done by the South Korean military. He lied about it all his life, lied about it in his autobiography. And I found in my reporting for this book, I found that he was in fact on the ground at one of the great mass killings in in Korea during the Korean War. And uh, he he said that it occurred at a different place um, and never uh, acknowledged that he was there. And he never reported it, that it occurred to his superiors. That killing was later blamed on North Korea. And in the, the the U.S. histories of the Korean War, the most prominent military history that's been written, it is still blamed on the North Koreans.
0: Wow, and this were South Korean troops or South Korean police executing their own citizens in mass. Yes. Wow. wow. By awesome. the thousands. Thousands, my gosh. And he was just there taking photos, taking notes, and then, I mean, did he report all of that to through Willoughby or did he keep that one to himself? No,
1: he did not report ah, that. Okay.
0: This was during the war. Oh, okay, okay, I
1: see, yeah. He, he, he was in a, in a strange position. If he would have reported this occurring, it would have gone up the chain of command because the war had started and there was a different set of, of, of army commanders in place by that time. If he had reported that he was there, it would have reflected badly on Rhee and it would have damaged Nichols' relationship with Rhee, which was one of his key power sources. So Nichols was very much compromised as a as an intelligence gatherer by his desire to be a big, powerful, young spy on the Korean Peninsula during the war.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. He was way too close to it and way too involved to be impartial in any way. And he didn't want to lose his meal ticket in Rhee, doesn't yeah. sound like.
1: Right. When I say big and powerful, I should also clarify a little bit about what Donald Nichols looked like.
0: <laughs> yes. I was just about <laughs> to ask you about that. He was not a, a movie star kind of guy, despite his you know leading role on the ground there in Korea. R-
1: right. He, he was about six foot two. And he very often weighed up to 260 pounds. He he was a colossus among human beings in the Korea at the time. Much bigger, much fatter than than any of the Koreans around whom he worked. And he worked mostly with Korean people, Korean intelligence people. He had an eating problem. He grew up hungry and he loved sweets and he would drink up to a case of Coke a day, oh. and boxes and boxes of Butterfingers or Hershey's, if he couldn't find <laughs> Butterfingers.
0: That's a healthy diet, for sure. That's, that's so rare for people to be obese back then, so he must have really stood out in every way imaginable.
1: Yeah. I talked to Korean intelligence peers of Donald Nichols, who are now in their 80s and 90s, and they said that in terms of how they understood the United States, the two most important Important and powerful people from the United States were General Douglas MacArthur and Donald Nichols.
0: Mm. That, that's incredible that he's so unknown to us, and he was such a pivotal figure to this—you know, this, this wartime period that we're all very familiar with. And you know, just now, 2017, a few years ago, was when his name started to make it out through your own reporting.
1: Yeah, there were three key intelligence units as the war progressed. The war went from 1950 to 1953. One of them was army intelligence called G2. One was the nascent CIA, which was scrambling to get more people on the ground and to figure out what it should do. And there was the organization that Donald Nichols created. It was simply called NIC. And it consisted of, as the war went on, about eight or 900 people, most of them South Korean intelligence operatives, about 100 Air Force, U.S. Air Force people who worked for Nichols. He had his own secret base and it operated on the rules that he set. And he reported only, he only reported to the general who was in charge of the U.S. Air Force for the Korean War. His name was General Earl Partridge. Partridge discovered Nichols just as the war started. He thought that he was really, really efficient so he, he, he created a command structure. It's called a stovepipe command structure where Nichols would report only to him. He didn't have to report to lower ranking generals or to colonels or to captains. And when the war started, hmm. <laughs> he, he was the equivalent of a master sergeant, but they quickly promoted him to major.
0: Right. Yeah. He went through, I think he was a warrant officer for a little while. Is that correct? And, yeah, um, that's right. At some point, he had had actually switched over to the new Air Force, which had split off from the Army at that time, right? So he was in a different service at this point. That's right. Yeah, so they just, I guess it was all Army personnel that switched off with the Army Air Corps, Army Air Force into the brand new U.S. Air Force at that time, but not a big surprise there, I suppose. And he, so probably no one was more prepared for the outbreak of war than... Nichols, when it actually did kick off over was it, June 1950, I think, was when they, they crossed the border.
1: Right, right. He had been there for four years. He'd learned the language. He knew the geography. He had contacts in the communist, the Soviet-supported government of Kim Il-sung, who is the, the grandfather of the current leader of North Korea. He knew everything that the Americans needed to know when the war started. He was sort of in the catbird seat. Uh, I think there's a pretty good analogy to Lawrence of Arabia in World War I. Lawrence of Arabia spoke local languages. He was an expert on the religion of of the Middle East. He uh, knew the, the leaders. And when war broke out, he was uniquely positioned to help the British figure out what to do. And the same thing was true of Nichols except that Nichols probably didn't speak Korean uh, nearly as well as T.E. Lawrence spoke Arabic. And also Nichols was nobody's scholar. Mm-hmm. One of his nephews told me that as far as they knew, he never, never read a book. So he was, a, he was an mm-hmm. operative with, with incredible instincts, incredible skills, but no real context for what he was up to. So he was more like a gangster. Than, than an intelligence, you know, we think of intelligence people like Smiley from John Le Carré, who are constantly thinking of the global uh, context for these things. They're very sad because spying is such a nasty business, but they do it anyhow because they love their country. Nichols mm-hmm. wasn't that kind of reflective man. He was, he was a, a, an action-oriented, amoral operative.
0: Right. And he, I mean, he got results as well, which is what kind of overshadowed a lot of his bad behavior. And there there was a lot of bad behavior for sure. But as long as he kept producing, uh, for the most part, he was able to kind of sail through, I guess you could say.
1: In the first year of the war, when he was promoted from uh, a warrant officer to major, <laughs> Which is a, a trajectory that is almost inconceivable in, oh, in, yeah. the, in the military. His commanding officers, including George Stratemeyer, who was the the commander of the entire operation for the Air Force in the in the in the Far East, he said that Nichols was incredible. He was uh, without peer. The commander of the Air Force uh, also described him as a one man war. Hmm. The Air Force was desperate for for something to do in Korea. Targets. To, to find targets to bomb. One thing American had that they, they brought to bear in this war was a massive amount of ordnance of, of bombs, conventional arms and napalm left over from World War II and giant bombers to drop the stuff and well-trained pilots who could hit virtually anything. What they needed was targets. Nichols was excellent in providing targets. And according to the official Air Force history of of the Korean War, he provided almost all the targets for a bombing operation that was particularly destructive. Although Americans never paid any attention, the United States, during the course of the Korean War, leveled every city in North Korea. And then after they had leveled them, they burned them with napalm.
0: Oh, yeah. Napalm had a big part to play in, in that war, in that peninsula, much more so than in uh, World War II. Is that correct?
1: Yes, because napalm really came into play at the end of World War II in the firebombing of Tokyo and, and some other cities in Japan. But it, the Air Force really perfected the use of napalm in Korea. And of course, then they went on to use it in
0: Vietnam. Right, right. Yeah, to, that's very well known in Vietnam for sure. I was not as familiar with the Korean War use until you mentioned it for sure, but it sounds like they just obliterated the North once they had accurate targeting info from Nichols and from his team and from his subsources and everything. Right. Wow. Well, uh, before we go on, I want to take a moment to fill you guys in on the newest tool that I'm wearing and carrying in daily life. It's the Donovan non-metallic knife from Black Triangle. If you aren't familiar with Black Triangle, then you're really missing out. I love these guys because they put the dagger in cloak and dagger. If you've been following me for a while now, then you probably already know why Black Triangle is called their newest non-metallic knife, the Donovan. It's named after General William Wild Bill Donovan, the head of the U.S. Office of Strategic Services during World War II. Under Donovan, the OSS was unconventional, unexpected, and highly effective, just like Black Triangle's tools. The Donovan is manufactured here in the United States, is made entirely of G10 composite, and it comes with a thermoplastic sheath and a couple of amazing extras, which you'll have to see for yourself. You can find it at blacktriangle.com. That's B-L-K-triangle.com. You can also get 15% off your first order with Black Triangle using the discount code SPYCRAFT101. I love mine, and I know you're going to love yours, too. So, Blaine, we talked about the napalm and the targeting, and it sounds like nobody was a better targeter than Nichols, but he also had these, a couple of, like, incredible recovery missions that he took part in during the war that he kind of led. So, can you talk about these intelligence coups that took place behind enemy lines?
1: well yeah there were there were there were two major ones the the when the war started, the Americans were really caught with their pants down in the late nineteen forties uh, because of Truman's desire to reduce the size of the American military the American military presence in Korea had gone down from more than two hundred thousand troops to about five hundred military advisors. They called this uh, military advisory group the Korean military advisory group, KMAC. That acronym was also uh, used mm-hmm. by those who remained in Korea. They called it Kiss My Ass Goodbye, because they they, they figured that if the North Koreans were to attack, they were <laughs> sunk. And in fact, that's what happened. When in, in, in June 25th, 1950, when uh, the, the invasion began with Soviet tanks backed by uh, Soviet MiGs, the U.S. and the South Korean forces were were basically whooped and forced to retreat down to the southern corner of the Korean Peninsula to a tiny tiny perimeter called the Pusan Perimeter. As they retreated, lots of Americans surrendered, freaked out, uh, got killed. It was it was it was a it was a terrible mess. And in the midst of all of this, the, the, probably one of the few military people who was performing well was Nichols. In the first six months of the war, he managed to do two things. He sent men to find the remains of a T-34 Soviet tank, which was very resistant to US US bazookas or artillery or or mortars. It, It proved unstoppable. He found one that had been wrecked somehow and he found ways to attack it. It had a weakness in its back near the air vent. And he sent that off to Washington. And then they started attacking these tanks from the air and, and, and attacking them from the rear and hitting them. And it, 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 was, it was very effective in stopping the tanks. And with the Soviet MiGs, he found a, a down MiG and sent its design characteristics, pieces of it back to Washington, and the American Air Force, then operating on a war footing, re-engineered its Sabre fighter jet to be more effective in fighting against the MiGs. And for both of these achievements, Nichols was given medals. He was given the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the second highest military honor after the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was given them secretly, and it wasn't announced until well after the war that he'd gotten them. So he was a superstar in the early months of the war.
0: That's it's so interesting to me because, like you said, in peacetime, he was great at coming up with all this information that nobody else could get and building these relationships and, you know, foretelling the future, essentially, through this accurate reporting. But even when the war went hot, he was still one of the brave, level-headed guys that knew how to react, knew how to continue doing his job, like you said. And he, he's just such a complex guy for sure despite all his failings and his you know his moral ambiguity and his his lies and embellishments and everything but he was you know unquestionably very very effective in so many important ways and and also such a failure in so many other ways too it's it's such a strange combination
1: it, it is he was a paradoxical hero and villain I, I spoke at uh, for over the course of a year and a half to his basically his secretary, a a young Mexican American, uh, young at the time. Uh, I think it was a sergeant named Serbando Torres, and he said that Nichols was fearless. He absolutely did not fear getting killed, and he would take incredible risks. And combine that with with real savvy about where bombs should be dropped. And who, who, was, who was who on the battlefield? And none of this information, particularly in the first few weeks and few months of the war, was available to the Americans. They simply did not know. They were caught with their pants down. And so Nichols was, because he knew he was brave, he was willing to act, he was given this enormous amount of power in a very short period of time. And like I said before, he ended up operating throughout the war with his own base, his own rules, and he wrote that he was he had a license to kill, like James Bond. He could do he could get, dispose of people who he didn't <laughs> who he thought were a threat. And in fact he did. He threw people out of airplanes if he suspected them of bad things. He actually had a shootout with some of his own spies in his, in his headquarters one evening, his spies were being sent to North Korea and almost all of them were getting killed. And so they had a kind of palace revolt and entered his headquarters one evening armed, and he shot three of them. And this report, this incident, which uh, was confirmed to me by Sir Bando Torres, his, his aide-de-camp, this never entered his military record he could shoot three of his subordinates in his own headquarters and it never got into the official military record.
0: That's incredible, incredible stuff. So, well, was was the reason for this that, I, I don't know, was it that nobody really cared about the Koreans because they weren't Americans or was it because he controlled the reporting himself or what do you think? I think
1: it's a combination of those two things. It, it, the first thing you said hits at a very important point. the The death toll, for Korean nationals in fighting in conjunction with the Americans, particularly in conjunction with American intelligence was hugely high. The CIA later acknowledged, actually relatively recently acknowledged that the death toll from its efforts to gather intelligence uh, was, you know, just unacceptably racistly high. And so many Koreans got killed to no effect, and Nichols was was very wasteful of human life, particularly if it was Korean life. So that that's one that's one element of it. The other element of it is that that Nichols was so successful, he had a very long leash, and people just weren't watching what he did. He just they didn't care what he did as long as he produced results, and that's what he he he, he wrote that in his autobiography. His autobiography, by the way, is full of lies but it's also full of incredibly valuable information.
0: Yeah, it's it's so strange to me because like you said you're you're able to verify through Torres and others that he he did this remarkable stuff, you know, in combat, in peacetime, everything, and he still was unable to just lay out the facts of what he had actually accomplished. He had to embellish in so many ways or outright make up stuff for his autobi- autobiography. Was it a a need to impress people or just uh, his long-standing, you know, living a double life? Or, or what do you think exactly?
1: He loved medals. He really wanted to get hmm. medals. And he, in fact, wrote up the reports of his, I mentioned the MiG success and the success in the T-34 tank. But there were several other adventures that he had. And he wrote up accounts of the adventures for the, to get the medals. And he described himself in the third person and he fictionalized at least two of those. He was not on the scene himself personally at the, at the collection of data on the MiG or the T-34. He was at a distance uh, in an airplane or far away from bullet fire, but he placed himself at the scene and that helped him to get the Distinguished Service Cross and the Silver Star. Yeah, but but that was also typical then yeah, of, bet, yeah. of commanding officers who very, very often collected the medals for the on-the-ground achievements of underlings.
0: Right, right. That's so unfortunate because he, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that he he put the mission together. He did find the T-34s. He trained up the people and sent them, and it was a successful recovery. And that wasn't good enough for him as the commander. He also had to say, yeah, I was right there inside the turret. With them, a, you know, dodging machine right. gun fire. It's just it's,
1: he wrote up the reports he, that said exactly that.
0: Yeah, it just it's just really unfortunate to cast a pall on all the good work you're doing with these, you know, things, these lies that eventually come out into the light of day.
1: Right, but that was sort of the uh, modus operandi at the time.
0: Yes, yes, that's unfortunate, but I think you're true. It makes you, it really casts a lot of a doubt on so many things that he he talked about himself so the the war there were two huge surprises, I guess from my perspective that's the initial invasion from north to south, of course, but then the when the Chinese entered the war a few months later, just when it was starting to go really well for South Korea and the United States so Nichols was he prepared for the uh, the Chinese invasion as well? Nichols was not well
1: informed of what the Chinese were doing, and part because the chinese were were much more clever. they didn't use radios they moved quietly and almost invisibly for several weeks through the backcountry along the Chinese border and into North Korea. There were soon reports that they were there, but Nichols was not privy to those early reports. Again, they were ignored by Uh, MacArthur and Willoughby, and another intelligence failure by the U.S. Army. But Nichols was not a key intelligence figure in, in detecting the Chinese invasion. But once it started to occur... And uh, MacArthur was soon fired in this in uh, actually before the second year of the war started. Nichols continued to rise in power because the war had turned into you know a major world conflict, and Nichols was still well placed. So he what he developed during the second and third year of the Korean War was a network of of bases on islands on both sides of the Korean Peninsula, where he sent spy outfits that would then slip in and out of North Korea on, on boats. And this was his, his the peak of his powers when he, I think he had more than 20 of these bases operating at the same time. And he was sending in hundreds of agents and then extracting them to gather information about what was going on in the North Korean military. And he was getting good information. As I said at the beginning of of this podcast, when a fighter pilot defected just at the end of the Korean War, the fighter pilot met with Nichols and was astonished to know that Nichols understood the command structure in detail. And he actually knew the key personalities from conversations and letters, the key uh, commanders of the of the North Korean Air Force. He was incredibly well placed. After the war was over, Nichols was in fact a key figure in a North Korean show trial. He was described as the as as, as the master spy, okay. the king of spies, the one who uh, was responsible for the bombing of North Korea. And what's interesting is that this was public. This show trial uh, was a show trial after all. So it was public. And they mentioned Nichols many times in public, but the American press never picked up on it.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. These are all of his North Korean sources that are being tried, or was it just innocent people caught up in a show trial?
1: Both. Some of them hmm. were sources for him.
0: Okay, yeah, that's that's unfortunate what happens at the end there. But it's, it blows my mind that, like you said, at the peak of his power, he had 20 island bases. He had hundreds of agents working for him. And he's a, well, I guess like a 23, 24, 25-year-old working all this out by himself, just getting you know unlimited funding unlimited manpower unlimited bodies to throw into the the meat grinder up there in North Korea and just gets everything he wants and gets a lot done with it
1: yeah he had his own base outside of uh, of Seoul it was secret its existence was known to south korean intelligence people key figures in ree's government and a few us senior commanders and in this in this base which is now a, a part of a a high-rise residential center in suburban Seoul. He was a lord. One time, North Korea sent a an assassin to kill him. And he personally, uh, he was made aware of this guy, and he went out and shot him. And then he was buried on the hillside not far from his office.
0: Oh, my gosh. Nichols just had this guy buried and just moved on after that? That was it? Yeah. Wow. Wow.
1: Although Nichols was for... Much of the rest of his life, always convinced that the North Koreans still hated him and were still after him, and were still sending agents to try to assassinate him. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that uh, that type of paranoia is unfortunate, but it's when it's already grounded in in more than a kernel of truth. In his case, I can understand why he would be, you know, spend so many years anxious after that. Yeah. So on that note, of course, the the Korean War it eventually winds down into this uneasy stalemate ceasefire, you know, that continues to this day and kind of ended with a a whimper rather than a bang. But what exactly happened to Nichols? Because I know that, like you said, he was the King of Spies for a while there, but that did not last by any stretch.
1: Well, it lasted for a pretty long time, actually. Nichols was in place as this powerful figure for 11 years, four years before the Korean War started, three years of the war, and four years afterwards. And during the four years after the war, he continued to be a close confidant of Sigmund Rhee, who at that time was turning from an authoritative leader who uh, was popular and who the Americans supported into a murderous dictator that the American hated and, and also was becoming increasingly unpopular, unpopular to the Korean, South Korean people. But Nichols stuck with the 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 gal that brung him, so to speak, and was very loyal to Nichols. I mean, was very loyal to Sigmund Rhee. And so what he did is he got involved in various shenanigans that Sigmund Ree did to try to neutralize, diminish, and in some cases execute his political rivals. There was a famous case of a political rival who ran against Rhee and lost. His name was Bong Ro Am. And he ran and lost against Rhee, but Rhee was so upset that he got so many votes that Rhee framed him, said that he was a North Korean agent. Nichols helped supply information on this case, and Bong was was executed. Later, the Supreme Court of South Korea said that this was a judicial execution, completely inappropriate and wrong, and it shouldn't have happened. But Nichols was involved in that. And so for four years after the war, Nichols continued to be powerful. But it did come to an end in 1957. And it was a very strange, uh, secretive end. And it was actually, I discovered it in, in the reporting for my book. Sometime in the summer of of 1957, Air Force officers came to Nichols' secret base just outside Seoul. They put him in a straitjacket and they secreted him off the base to a psychiatric hospital in Japan where they pumped him full of Thorazine. He did not understand what was happening, why this was happening to him. The psychiatrist there, according to his military record, which I found, said that he was suffering from schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a uh, disease, a profound mental condition that very often comes on in, in early adulthood. Nichols had never, according to his military record and many people who knew him, had never shown any symptoms of being a schizophrenic. But he was immediately diagnosed by the Air Force psychiatrist as a schizophrenic. And then they put him on a plane and flew him to Eglin Air Force Base in North Florida, where they gave him a lot more Thorazine. And then they gave him electroshock therapy, Uh, many, many, many rounds of electroshock therapy. And then he was thrown out of the Air Force.
0: Hmm. Wow, that's such an ignominious end for the guy. And it's so abrupt as well. Was this tied to any particular action of his? Was it retribution for some specific thing or... Or what exactly? What's your theory on that?
1: Well, the the Air Force secretly did this. Uh, Nichols never talked about it in his own autobiography, and never to any of his of his family or friends that I could find. And I did talk to lots of his relatives. There's no paper trail that says specifically what Nichols had done to receive this this treatment. He he would say to his relatives while during and after the electroshock treatment, that they were trying to erase his memory because he knew too much about what had happened in Korea. That was his version of it. But a number of, of sort of messy things had happened during his era in, in Korea. One, he was in possession of many hundreds of thousands of dollars. He used it to buy spies, to to fund his operations, and he was virtually unsupervised. I talked to several people who went into his office during the war and afterwards. He had a big bank of of lockers behind his desk. And sometimes during a conversation with somebody who was about to be sent out to a mission in North Korea, he would reach behind his desk, open a door, grab a big wad of money, And throw it at the guy and says, "This'll do it for you, oh my god t- and so he had access to large amounts of money with no supervision. there the, Some hmm. of his colleagues in the South Korean intelligence forces told me that Nichols was using that money to buy and sell various contraband things like earth movers and uh, road graders and he was he was he was really a black market player, so that's one one of his issues. Another issue is that he continued to be very mm-hmm. close to Sigmund Rhee as Sigmund Rhee was hated by the U.S. State Department, who wanted to get rid of Sigmund Ree because he was embarrassing the United States on the global stage. So that closeness to Sigmund Rhee and his virtually unregulated mm-hmm. s- standard was what, another thing. And then there's the issue of, 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 of Nichols' sexual proclivities. I talked to several... South Korean intelligence officers who said that Nichols v- frequently brought had young Korean Air Force recruits in the age, ages between 16 to 20 brought to his quarters in the evening for sex. And it, this, was a, this was a well-known secret, but they let him get away with it again because he was such a superstar. Mm-hmm. He was so close to Sigmund Rhee. He got what he wanted, and this this uh, this was at a time when there were when homosexuality in in the Air Force was a you know for verboten and and a reason for com- dismissal and humiliation. But of course, this was more than homosexuality. This was abuse of power and could be described as rape. But Nichols got away with it for years, and so. One of these problems, or all three of them, as uh, uh, synergetically, might have come together to persuade the State Department, the CIA, the Air Force, or all three operating together to get rid of Nichols.
0: Right, right. It makes sense. I mean, he's an incredible asset before and during the war, but he's turning into a liability now that the war is over, for the most part, because of his personal concerns and his connection with Rhee and just everything. So I can see how all of that starts to build up kind of like a critical mass you yeah. know, um, against him.
1: Right. Then one other thing is that his involvement in the affair of the execution of this uh, Korean politician, Cho Bong-am, whose name I now remember properly, that mm-hmm. p- probably also was a consideration because at the time of uh, Nichols' disappearance from South Korea, the, the United States State Department was freaking out uh, and telling Sigmund Rhee not to try and execute this political opponent. But Rhee would do it anyhow. That also would figure in to the the secreting away of Donald Nichols. But so he returns to the United States in his early 30s. His life as he knew it was over. And he described Mm -hmm. himself after he was relieved from the psychiatric hospital at the Air Force Base in Florida. He he described himself as, you know, like a stranger in a strange land, wandering alone without really a clue about how to live. But he wasn't completely clueless. He had come back with hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash, which he kept in his brother Judson, Judson his, one, his older brother, kept it in the freezer, wrapped in, in paper bags, and he kept it there for years. And he bought real estate with it across Florida in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and he he, he did rather well for himself. Unfortunately for him. His 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 taste for young boys Hmm. continued and in Fort Lauderdale and later in North Florida, he was uh, accused and then later convicted of abusing young boys.
0: Oh, wow. So he he ended up going to jail here in the U.S. for that. Is that right?
1: In lieu of going to jail, he went back to a psychiatric hospital in in Uh. Tuscaloosa in Alabama, and that's where he died. In uh, 1992, at the age of 69.
0: Oh wow! So still relatively young in that case. How how did he pass away? Was it drug abuse, or suicide, or natural causes, or?
1: Well, his I mentioned his weight. He, his weight f- would fluctuate from 260 to 160, and it did so several times throughout his life. By the end of his life, he was he was a physical wreck, and he s- suffered from. Uh, some symptoms of dementia and he just collapsed uh, apparently of a heart attack while in alone in his hospital room in Tuscaloosa
0: oh wow wow talk about a guy who experienced kind of like the highest of highs and the lowest of lows through his life for sure went out at a low point as well no question yeah. about it
1: yeah it's interesting when he was buried in in northern florida the only people who came Were a few family members and his accomplishments in the Korean War were not understood, were invisible. And what's also interesting is that he created cemetery headstones at his burial plot that didn't mention that he served in the Korean War. So he went out like a spy, secretly and in in sort of a a haze of confusion.
0: Really? (laughs) Wow, that is something else. What a life that guy lived. It's incredible stuff. Well, Blaine, this this has been a wonderful story. Thank you so much for for digging it up to begin with, because I don't think anybody would have ever learned anything without your your thorough research, for sure. And thanks for taking the time to talk to me about it today as well. My pleasure. Are you working on another book right now? I know you've written several in the past, of course.
1: Well, I have a strange uh, uh, duopoly here. I I write about North Korea, and I also write about the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so I, I've just finished a book okay. about the history of, of an Indian a mass killing out here. And I'm also I'm thinking about other books about the Pacific Northwest. The Korea is a long ways away. And although I may redo parts of the Nichols book because I'm getting access to uh, more information about oh, wow. his life and his accomplishments.
0: Wow. Is it is it building on what you knew or is it taking like an unexpected twist? The
1: National Archives have cla- had classified most of nickel's records and they are now starting to become declassified six years after my mm, freedom of information request
0: wow well, this is very timely for me in that case so yeah i'll have to look for that if you if you definitely publish an update i'll, I'll pick up that one as well for sure it's an okay. incredible story
1: i'm not sure when that'll happen the government moves slowly
0: yes i i'm sure they do yeah declassifying something from the korean war and now it's already 2021. Going into 2022, that's, yeah, they're taking your time for sure. So how can people find you right now? Uh, Do you have an online presence that they can follow you on to hear more about your books?
1: Yeah, it's Blaineharden.com. And the the book is available in paperback, King of Spies. I'm not sure how quickly I will update the story because I I have some of the information. But, you know, to update a book, you want to make sure that you've got everything possible.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it really stands out as it is already, even with the information you have, because what you had was maybe not the whole story, but it was certainly well-researched and verified and everything. So it's, it's fascinating insight into that time period, for sure. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you joining me today, Blaine.
1: Okay, my pleasure.
0: All right, take care. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram, at Spycraft 101, or connect with me on Patreon. My patrons get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. That includes a free PDF copy of my own book, Spy Shots Volume 1, 101 True Tales from the World of Espionage. I want to say a big thank you to all of my patrons, including Robert S. and Joshua W. With your support, I've been able to continue funding my research and publication across multiple platforms to date. Thank you all for listening. And I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback
1: allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.